You're listening to the History of Home Improvement from the Hardlines podcast series. Today's episode was written by Hardlines President Michael McCarney and read by Jeff McCarney. If there was ever a golden boy of this industry, it was Dolliver Frederick. Even the name evokes a certain amount of respect. Dolliver Frederick. Dolliver got his start as an oil executive with Esso and quickly made a name for himself as a smart businessman. For a while, he worked at Gunner Mines, which later became Bovis Corporation. Gunner Mines had been founded by Gilbert Labine, who was the first person to discover uranium in Canada. Dolliver next found himself in retail, overseeing some of the legacy brands based in Winnipeg, once Canada's western centre for shipping and commerce. Personally, Dolliver Frederick was as charismatic as he was brilliant. Tall, lean, blonde, and handsome, his trademark look was a $2,000 suit and a $150 Marac tie. Somewhere along the line, he set his sights on the hardware industry. He invested big, made a big impact, then crashed and burned the whole thing within a few years. The hardware industry lost track of him after that, and his address in Newport Beach was a far cry, after all, from the nuts and bolts of, well, nuts and bolts. His end was abrupt and something right out of a crime magazine. What went on between his reign in the hardware business and his death in 2018 is open for speculation, but the mark he left on this industry was huge. Did it hold any clues to his tragic end? I first met Dolliver at the Western Show. In those days, it was held in Vancouver in early September. One could not ask for better weather, and the show was always welcomed as a getaway, even if the business being generated there by the mid-1980s was on the wane. But Dolliver apparently got the bug at the beginning of the decade. He was president of Winnipeg-based McLeod Stedman in the early 1980s, a wholesaler that served McLeod's hardware stores in Western Canada, as well as junior department stores under the Stedman name throughout Western and Central Canada. After that, he went shopping for a company of his own. In 1982, he took over a middling hardware wholesaler, Cochrane Dunlop, merging it into his own company, Dolliver Frederick Holdings. Cochrane Dunlop was founded in 1909 by Frank Cochrane in Sudbury, in Ontario's near north. Since 1944, it had a warehouse in Toronto's West End, on Bloor Street, in what is now known as the Junction Area, thanks to the network of train tracks that crisscrosses the area to this day. The hardware wholesale business in Canada has always been a challenging proposition. In the 1980s, many dealers were still unaffiliated, true independents that often as not carried no banner but their own name. D.H. Howden, a wholesaler based in London, Ontario, was the industry's only true national hardware supplier. Regional operators served smaller markets. For example, C.N. Weber out of Kitchener, Ontario, served central Canada, while Smith Barriger in Langley, B.C., held sway on the West Coast. Home hardware was growing steadily and by then had a national presence, but it was selling only to its own bannered members. Cochrane Dunlop was one of many regional wholesalers. In the West, another general hardware wholesaler called Marshall Wells was doing its best to supply dealers there. But the writing was on the wall. Groups like Home Hardware would eventually take the lead, while the growing ranks of building centers were organizing more cohesively under various buying groups, including Independent Lumber Dealers Cooperative and Timbermart. Dolliver was at the Western Hardware Show in early 1986, having just acquired Marshall Wells from, wait for it, 
the Hudson's Bay Company. He paid $20 million for it. That money was used by HBC to reduce the debt it had incurred from the recent acquisitions of Zellers and Simpsons. But as it would turn out, Dolliver could have used that cash more. The combined entities of Cochran Dunlop and Marshall Wells made his enterprise noteworthy, another truly national hardware wholesaler, to give Howden a run for its money. So there was Dolliver, standing a half a head above most of the dealers and vendors in the hockey arena where the hardware show was being held. And he stood out further thanks to the aforementioned navy blue suit and red maroc tie. Impeccably appointed, he looked more like a televangelist than a hardware guy. He was smooth and he was unflappable. He took time with everyone who came by, welcoming them and directing them to his team for service. I showed up alongside Barry Sally. Barry was himself something of a big deal in the industry, and likely the only other person in that arena with a suit that might have rivaled Dolliver's. Barry ran Timbermart. He had joined within the first couple years of the buying group's existence. A young, aggressive salesperson for one of the wholesalers, he was invited by the group's founding seven members to manage its purchases. He would be paid a percentage of those purchases. At the time he was hired, Barry boasted to the dealers that he would grow Timbermark to a $10 million company. You're listening to the Hardlines podcast series. This episode is brought to you in part by RDTS, one source for all your retail merchandising needs. Every day, RDTS links its industry knowledge with market insights and consumer trends to accelerate sales and drive winning results. By the time I met Barry just six years later, the group's collective sales were about $150 million, making it the country's largest buying group by sales volume. Barry was the guy. In addition to being the group's president, he was its only buyer. He was considered the single biggest buyer in the country for hardware and building supplies, and Dolliver Frederick wanted to do business with him. I was a junior editorial assistant at Hardware Merchandising, itself a magazine that had just celebrated a century in business. It was the second magazine founded by Colonel McLean back in 1889, and like the hardware business, it had endured. I worked for Sally Prasky, a no-nonsense editor who taught me the basics of journalism and magazine editing. At the time, Barry had a home on Point Grey Road in Vancouver. Probably one of the toniest addresses in the Lower Mainland, this shack hung on to a cliff overlooking English Bay. I stayed there with Barry and his wife Roxanne during the Vancouver Expo in 1986. I remember waking up in the morning. The rising sun shone on the water, dappling the freighters that sat in the bay. My head swam as I looked out the huge picture window. Barry was proud of the fact that his home had been featured in one of Vancouver's design and lifestyle magazines. Needless to say, that home is where Dolliver and his wife Joan ended up that evening after the show, as guests for drinks. I got to tag along. Barry shared some of his nicest wines, and Joan and Roxanne got on famously. Dolliver, stopping only to check the crease on his pants, discussed business and talked up his team. It was led by Wolf Gruber, a German-born retail manager who was dapper in his own right, and would go on to run Ace Hardware in Canada a decade later. Dolliver referred to Gruber's team as the Wolf Pack. At one point, we were joined by another notable couple. Timbermark's spokesperson at the time was hockey star Tiger Williams. He and his wife also showed up that evening. 
Barry liked Tiger's aggressive image and believed it reflected the independent, determined attitude that defined his dealers. A Westerner himself, Tiger Williams had recently been traded from the Vancouver Canucks to join the Detroit Red Wings, and to this day, he holds the record for the most penalty minutes of any NHL player. I was a fly on the wall, in a room full of strong personalities, all leaders in their own right. Dolliver held court with ease. How much business he ended up doing with Barry, and with his dealers in the Timbermart buying group, is best left for another story. But regardless, Dolliver was gaining enough traction with his combined businesses that he soon outgrew his existing facility in Toronto's West End. Sales in 1978 were $73 million. By the time Dolliver was in full stride, they had reached $120 million. And that was in spite of the drain that Marshall Wells was putting on the company. Despite having over 70 stores of its own that it served, the Marshall Wells business was losing money. Thinking big, this is something one got used to with Dolliver, he had a giant distribution center built in Aurora, about 45 minutes north of Toronto. But the end was already in sight. The assets of the hardware business had been tapped to fund the construction of the giant facility in Aurora. It was the jewel in Dolliver's corporate crown. Alas, by this time, the company was running on fumes. Dealer development was stalled, despite the popularity of the Dominion hardware banner, especially in small-town Ontario. Cochrane Dunlop's esteemed wolf pack just couldn't get the critical mass it needed to be viable. When Sally Prasky and I left the McLean Hunter offices to drive to Aurora to report on the downfall of Cochrane Dunlop, the building was all but empty. We entered and climbed the stairs to the second floor, where Dolliver's wife Joan sat behind a large reception desk. She smiled pleasantly in recognition and directed us to a big wooden door. Dolliver's been waiting for you, she said. We entered an office that was easily the size of a high school gymnasium. Way at the back of the room was a giant wooden desk, with two chairs in front of it. Behind the desk, looking as dapper as ever, was our man Dolliver. He graciously welcomed us, and we sat in large, sumptuous leather chairs. And he told his story. His efforts to hold the company together were nothing short of brilliant. He had done battle with creditors, attempting to keep the company afloat even as it had been drained to build this palace of glass and steel where we sat that day. After almost an hour recounting the story of the demise of Cochrane Dunlop, Dolliver had managed to bring tears to his eyes. So dramatic was his telling of the saga. I was moved, if just a bit skeptical at the same time. But he had recounted one hell of a story and given one hell of a performance. So that was Dolliver Frederick. I lost track of him except to look him up during Christmas time about nine years ago. I found an address and, surprisingly, a phone number to go with it. He lived in Corona del Mar, a community within Newport Beach, part of Greater Los Angeles. His home, a 3,300-square-foot ranch-style house on one floor, has a large swimming pool out front and backs onto a large public park. That was Dolliver's hood. He picked up the telephone and I introduced myself. Coming out of the blue as I was, I spoke directly and to the point in hopes that he would understand my call was strictly a friendly one. Dolliver was pleasant enough with me, his gracious demeanor undiminished after all the years that had passed. Though he tried his best, I don't believe he really remembered me. 
Nevertheless, we had a pleasant, if brief, conversation. That was the last I heard of Dolliver. Until last year, when Hardlines was celebrating its 25th anniversary. I found myself going back through the history of the industry during that time, and my own personal memories of the people and places that had made my involvement in reporting on this industry so interesting. Finding him was easier than ever, thanks to the internet. But at the same time, there was very little that turned up. What I did find shocked me. A headline in the LA Times. Deceased in possible Corona Del Mar murder-suicide were in their 70s. Wow. Murder-suicide. Dolliver, aged 74, and his wife Joan, a year younger. Not the kind of ending we come to expect at Hardlines. Not the kind of ending anyone who knew Dolliver through his life would have expected of him. What lay under that confident, dapper exterior that might have indicated a darker side of Dolliver Frederick? What aspects of his character or his life could have hinted at the brutal outcome to that life? If nothing else, it reminded me that the stories of this industry are stories not just about businesses, but about people. Dolliver Frederick was indeed someone who made his mark on this industry and left an incredible story. You've been listening to The History of Home Improvement. It's produced by Hardlines, Canada's information service for the retail home improvement industry. For more information, visit us at hardlines.ca.